Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. I'll begin by reading verses 4 through 6, which spell out for us the second of God's Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And then we will flip over to John chapter 4 in the New Testament and read verses 21 through 26. Please give your attention to God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said to her, the Samaritan woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, as we transition our focus from last week, looking at the first commandment of God's Ten Commandments, which summarize all of God's law, to the second commandment, it may be difficult at first to really distinguish the difference. How is the second commandment different from the first The first commandment prohibits the worshiping of any false gods. And at first, the second commandment can just look like an elaboration on that command. But if you'll notice, what the first commandment addresses is who we worship. We are to worship the one true God, the one creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh the one who has revealed himself to the people that he has saved, the people that he has redeemed and brought to himself, the one true God. The second commandment says you must worship that one true creator, redeemer, and judge who is the one true God. You must worship him only in the way in which he has commanded. So the first one is about who you worship. The second commandment is how do you worship this one true God? And notice we're talking about worship. Sometimes it's been misunderstood in history that this second commandment is against making any kind of images, any kind of representations of anything in terms of an artistic sense. But that's not what this addresses because clearly it says you're not to make these images in order to bow down to them, to worship before them. So it's the worship that involves images of God that is addressed here. And just as we saw last week that Israel was extremely unique in terms of history and its own culture in being really the first people 
that worshipped one true God and denied the existence of any other gods because, as we saw last week, all other nations around them worshipped either many gods themselves or maybe worshipped their their god, their tribal god or their national god, but believed that other gods existed. Israel was the first and obviously the true religion where the one true God was worshipped. Well, it's also Israel was also unique in relation to the second commandment because Israel was unique in the sense that it had no image of the God that it worshipped and served. There was no image of God in the worship of Israel, at least when Israel was being obedient. Matter of fact, if you were to go into the Holy of Holies, of course, holy, the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later of the temple was to be the place where God didn't live because they understood that he lived in the heavens, but that he met with his people, that the presence of God was in a special way there in the Holy of Holies. And there was an object at the middle of the Holy of Holies. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant was not an image of God. Matter of fact, if you remember, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a seat. It's called the mercy seat. And so the Ark of the Covenant was often alluded to as the throne of God, or sometimes, even in one case at least, it was called the footstool of God. So it was not an image of God at all. Israel was to be a people who worshipped the one true God without images. And as we move to the New Testament, really the Christians were unique in this regard in their culture as well, because the Christians were actually... If you read Roman history, they were, they consider, many of the Romans considered Christians to be atheists. They called them atheists because they didn't worship any images. And so they didn't think that they had a real God that they worshiped. But we need to move beyond the prohibition against using pictures or images or statues in order to worship God because it'd be very easy for those of us in this room, I'm imagining that probably at least 95%, if not 100% of us, could probably say, well, okay, if keeping the second commandment means not having an idol or not having a graven image that I bow down and worship before, then I can check this box off and move on to commandment number three. But obviously, as we've seen with commandment number one and we will see with the other commandments, the outward manifestation of obedience to these commandments often doesn't get to the real core of our sin. So what sin is really being addressed here? What's the heart issue? And I think as we dig into that question, we'll find out that making graven images and bowing down before images is actually a very relevant, very contemporary, and very common issue in the church as well as outside the church. Matter of fact, this goes back a ways, but probably one of the best examples of graven image worship that I've seen in my short history of the church happened about 20 years ago. And it's happened in many other cases, in many other ways, in many other places. But this was just such a clear example of it. There was a, a group of liberal denominations, leadership from liberal denominations, that decided to get together and have a women's conference. And they were to call in some of the best-known women women's theologians and um, to come in and speak and have a conference of gathering for women. And in that conference, it was called the Reimagination Conference. And if you've been around a while, you probably heard about it. It got quite a bit of press 20 years ago. 
In that conference, in the original, in the uh, initial gathering at the beginning of the conference, they had a ceremony to rename the God of Christianity, to embrace the name Sophia as the name of the God of Christianity. Now, it's interesting because if you know Sophia, it's the Greek word for wisdom. But it was a desire to allow women to reimagine God in a version that they could relate to, that they could worship. Later on in that same conference, they had a worship service where they featured a sacrament, but instead of celebrating the Lord's Supper with the bread and the cup, they used milk and honey. And there you go with another biblical imagery, which not is, is not to be associated with worship, but they used that imagery. And if you want to know why, actually one of the, the uh, female theologians gave this explanation. She said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff like that. We don't need atonement. We just need to listen to the God within. That's why they used milk and honey in their sacrament. When they had some breakout sessions, here are some questions. They handed out lists of questions for the women to talk about in the breakout section, sections. And here are some of the questions. Who is your God? What does your God look like? What name would you give to your God? Well, you can see where this is going. This is done in the name of Christianity, but it's a reimagining of the God of the Bible into something completely different. And so when the second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, it is clearly saying you shall not reimagine God. God cares very much about your heart. And he does not want you to reimagine him. Matter of fact, when you think about the difference between the first and the second commandment, very quickly in Israel's history, they were going to see a very painful example of what that looks like. Because you'll remember, while Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the people at the foot of the mountain became very impatient. And they began to cry out for going back to Egypt, going back to their old life. They were tired of the suffering of discipleship. And so they asked for Aaron to make for them new gods. Make us gods who shall go before us, they said. They wanted to break the first commandment. Matter of fact, obviously in their hearts, they already were breaking the first commandment. But Aaron tried to compromise. He didn't want the people to stop serving Yahweh, the one true God, but he wanted to accommodate them and keep them from rebelling. So he came up with a plan. Let me read to you. I'm just going to skip over to Exodus chapter 32 for a second and read there verses 4 and 5. He told them to bring the gold that the, the Egyptians had given them when they were uh, driven out of the land. And so Aaron said to them, take, the, take off the rings of gold that are in your, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
breaking the first commandment. But listen to what Aaron said in response. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And if you see the text there, it has the Lord in capital letters, which means it's the name Yahweh. So they wanted to break the first commandment and reject God. Aaron wanted to compromise and say, don't reject God. Let me just use a more culturally relevant symbol for you to use in your worship of God. And so he used the image of a calf or a bull, which was very familiar to them from their time in Egypt, which was a very common religious symbol or a symbol of the gods in Egypt. He says here, go ahead and worship this golden calf, but do it in the name of Yahweh. And you can see where this led for the people of God. And you saw God's response to that. He hates the sin of worshiping false gods and also the attempt to worship the true God by using false methods, destructive methods, worldly methods. Another example came up later in Israel's history. Remember Jehu. Jehu was one of those superhero kind of kings. He was, he was a man's man. He was all braveheart. He was, the, he, he was anointed by Elisha to go into Israel and to punish, not the Israelites per se, but the leadership, Ahab. Ahab is the one in that era who had led the people into the worship of Baal, who was the god of the Canaanites. And so God sent Jehu in to bring punishment, discipline against Ahab and his family. And he wiped out Ahab's family, all his 70 sons, his wife. And it says in the text, and for this I'm going to turn over to 2 Kings chapter 10. It says in the text how successful this mission was for Jehu. Beginning in verse 27. And they, the men under Jehu, demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Success. But, I wish the story ended with that verse. But the very next verse, verse 29 says, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in, and in Dan. There were two alternate worship sites set up outside of Jerusalem, one in Dan and one in Bethel, with golden calves that were idols, that were graven images, that were meant to be worship centers for people to come to to worship Yahweh. And so Jehu successfully got rid of the idolatry in the sense of the false god of Baal being worshipped in Israel, but he allowed the breaking of the second command of using the golden calves as an image to worship the true God. He allowed that to continue and that's why he comes under God's judgment ultimately. God hates both sins. And even though we can make a distinction between them, there is obviously a clear connection between worshiping false gods and worshiping, trying to worship the true God using false images. So why is this so wrong? We need to think about this for a moment. Biblically speaking, why is it so wrong? And I think it helps to go to the reason why we are tempted to come up with graven images. What need does that scratch in our soul? What are we hungry for that makes us want to have visible images? And like everything else, there, there is a good 
need and a good purpose that is twisted by Satan to tempt us into evil. And the good desire that's at the root of wanting to have graven images is the desire to see God. Matter of fact, if you were to ask me, what's the greatest desire that a child of God should have? The greatest desire is to see God. Isn't that what Moses said? Moses was on top of Mount Sinai while they're committing this sin with the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, and he's seeing a representation of the glory of God, but that wasn't enough for him. He said, God, show me your glory. With all that he had seen, he wanted to see more. He wanted to see the fullness of God's glory. That's a good desire. But sin is the problem. We lost the right. If you want to understand biblical religion, you need to understand this first and foremost. We lost the right to see God in all of his glory when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and, we, and they were cast out of his presence. We cannot look upon God in all of his glory because of our sin. And we will not see God in all of his glory until sin has been put away once and for all and we're able to look upon him in our perfection as well as his perfection. So we do not live by sight. Paul says, we are, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. A lot of abuses and, and, and bad practices in the church would be avoided if we really understood what that meant when it comes to worship. That while we are away from the Lord, living as sinners in a fallen world, living by faith, we see by faith, we see God by faith, we live by faith, we do not see him with our physical eyes. But we, you know, as a parent who raised a lot of kids, you know, I always enjoyed it when my kids would try to make, you know, little stick figures that were mom and dad, you know, that, you know, I enjoyed that. Why does not, why doesn't God enjoy us, even if they're crude and primitive and, and inaccurate to a certain degree, why doesn't God enjoy it when we make pictures of him, when we try to represent him in some physical drawing or image or even a statue? Why would he be offended by that? Well, it offends his honor and his glory, but it offends his love for us because he knows what this does to us in our faith. There are two reasons, I think, primarily why God, and this is biblically speaking, why God does not want us to have visual images or visual representations of himself for us to worship. The first one is that images obscure God's glory inherently. Images obscure God's glory inherently. One commentator I read this week said, it's a great sin to subject the incomprehensible God to human understandings and limitations. One of the first things you need to know about the one true God who created all things is that this God is transcendent. To say that God is transcendent means he is wholly other. He is separate from his creation. And there is nothing that he, in this whole universe, that he created by the power of his word alone that can even begin to adequately represent who he is. Think about Aaron's bull, his calf, his golden calf. The Egyptians liked that image because it spoke to the strength of their gods, the power of their gods. But what is the strength and power of a bull compared to the omnipotent God who created the universe by the power of his word alone? 
And if you go outside of that characteristic, even if it only in a tiny way speaks to the power of God, when you think of a bull or a calf in other terms, it's a total insult to God in terms of his other characteristics. That's why it's wrong to use images. It obscures the glory of God. It it tries to put God in a box. It tries to make the transcendent, incomprehensible God into an understandable God, a God that we can not only understand and relate to, but that we can manipulate to a certain degree. It makes him safer. It makes him smaller. It puts him on a leash, so to speak. It makes him user-friendly. That's what visual images do when you put them into the relationship with the God of the universe. And isn't that really what the idols were about, is about controlling God? Because, it, you know, even though scriptures sometimes talk about pagans like they worshipped blocks of stone or, or metal or wood, to really to be fair to the pagans, they didn't believe that those little statues were really gods. They didn't really believe that they even contained their god. What they believed is that by having these statues and by doing their little rituals around them, they were able to gain access to God through that idol. They were able to earn their God's favor through that idol. They were able to manipulate their gods through that idol. And I've seen that happen time and time again, even in the Christian church where there's not supposed to be any images in our worship. Historically, things like statues, icons, portraits, prayer cloths, little vials filled with water from the River Jordan, whatever it might be, there's always this tendency to want to have some object that can connect us to God and give us some sort of control over God and put a leash on God so that he can do our will instead of us doing his will. Images obscure the glory of God. That's why Jesus said, when talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that we read earlier, he's talking to a woman whose people, the Samaritans, had gotten deep into the idolatry of the lands around them and tried to combine that with the worship of Yahweh. And he said to her, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. True worship comes to God in spirit because God is spirit. And it comes in truth. God is infinite and invisible. God is omnipotent and omniscient. How do you portray those central characteristics of the true God to God's people without Corrupting, distorting, greatly limiting them. Pictures can't do it. Statues can't do it. And when Jesus says that true worship must be in spirit and it must be in in truth, that leads us to the second reason that I think images are detrimental and destructive to worship instead of helpful to worship. And that's not only do images obscure God's glory, but they obscure God's word. And God's word is the way that he comes to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is part of the second retelling of the law in Deuteronomy as the Israelites were about to go into the promised land, there's a section there where God gives a warning against breaking the second commandment. But listen to the wording of it. It's different here. Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 11. 
God is describing what happened at Mount Sinai. He says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. Skip down to verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal, and so on and so on. Why were they not to use forms and pictures and idols and statues in worship? Because when God came to them, he came to them in his word. They heard his voice. That's how God reveals himself to his people. It's through his word. And that hasn't changed. That's still how you see God today by faith. That's high hope why you're here this morning. You came to see the glory of God. And you didn't see it in me. You didn't see it in the musicians. You aren't going to see it in the cross. You're not going to see it anywhere. You're going to see the glory of God when the word of God is presented to you clearly and accurately. That's how you see the glory of God by faith. This transcendent, incomprehensible, unknowable God becomes known when he speaks to sinners like you and me. And we hear his word. That's how the transcendent God becomes imminent. And that's why this commandment, even though it sounds like it's addressing pagan worship practices that go back many, many centuries ago, that's why it's so relevant because we live, I think, in one of the most visually oriented cultures that the world has ever seen. And I keep reading about it. Secular sources as well as Christian sources about how we're getting away from the written word and the spoken word. And we're all about pictures. We're all about images. And the degree to which we allow that cultural mindset to infect the church and take away from the spoken word of God, the more we're going to lose our vision of God's glory. Now, back at the time of the Reformation, you'll know that a big part of what the Reformation was about was the reformers, those who had gotten serious about studying the word again. They got convicted about this kind of thing, and they went through the churches, which had been totally overrun and filled to the brim with statues and icons and pictures and objects, holy objects. And they got rid of all of it. Totally cleaned house. Matter of fact, they were a little hyperactive about it. They went a little too far, I think, because if you go back and read the historical accounts, Reformation churches, after the Reformation, they were known as four walls and a pulpit. And that was just to speak to how plain and simple that they didn't want anything to distract from the Word of God. Now, I think that's probably going a little bit too far. I think we say something about our God if we make our places of worship too bland and too plain. I think beauty is something that's acceptable, but it's not to be any in any way a representation of God or his word. Beauty, beauty and artistry is beautiful. But when we walk into a church service and it looks like we've walked into a theater and you've got a stage and a platform that's filled with dramatic sets and props, and you've got videos blaring, not just before and after the service, but during the service, and sometimes even taking a good part of the chunk of the sermon itself. 
To me, I believe that we, and I think according to what the second commandment demands, we are moving away from a vision of the glory of God and we're moving to what pleases man in our culture and we're worshiping a God that's more culturally relevant than we are worshiping the God of the scriptures. Worship must center around the word of God. I hope you notice that, that we try very hard in this church to make every part of the service saturated with the word of God. Because that is where you're going to see the glory of God. That is where you're going to come under conviction of sin. That is where you're going to hear the gospel. That is where you're going to experience the saving work of God. This is crucial. Worship must be about the reading of Scripture, the proclamation of Scripture, the praying of Scripture, the singing of Scripture. It must be about God's Word because that's how we see His glory. You know, there are two visual aids that Scripture gives us to go with the Word. There's only two visual aids that go with the preaching of the Word. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those aren't pictures of God, per se, but of God's saving work. We don't have the right to add any other visual aids to worship. Because when we do, we take away not only from the Word, but from the power of the sacraments and their intention. Let me point out here that this commandment is given. And in the second half, of it, you'll notice there's a long section at the second half of this commandment where it's all given in covenant language. Did you notice that? When God formed a covenant with his people, remember the commandments were given to a people that were already redeemed. These were not ten ways to make yourself right with God, but these were rules that were given to God's people after God had already redeemed them, after he'd already saved them from slavery and death in Egypt and brought them to himself and entered into a covenant relationship with them. It's only after he formed that eternal covenant relationship with them that he gave them these rules. And we said last week and the week before that that covenant relationship is like a marriage. And once you understand that, the reason God doesn't want you to make pictures for yourself of a reimagined God so that you can worship God through them is because he loves you. The church is his bride. And he doesn't want to see the church led astray and enslaved by the gods of their past. That's why the reason given for this commandment alludes to the jealousy of God. Remember we said that last week, that the covenant is like a marriage. And so God is jealous for his bride. Not only does he not want his bride worshiping false gods, but he doesn't want his bride trying to worship the true God through false representations. Think about this. How would, husbands, how would your wife feel if she picked up your wallet one day and opened it up and she was pleased to see that you had a big, bold picture of her right there in the middle of her wallet so he could, he could look at it every day? But what if she noticed when she really looked at it that that photo had been photoshopped, touched up here and there? Actually, as a matter of fact, in a significant way to make the wife look exactly like he wanted her to look like. How would the wife feel about that? By the way, Suzanne, that picture would look just like you. No, no Photoshop. But isn't that really what reimagining God in worship is all about? Where, you know, it's one thing, my wife will admit she has flaws that she wished she could Photoshop out. But God is perfect. He has no flaws. So anything that deviates from the revelation of who God is in his word 
is an abomination to him. It's a lessening of who he is in our minds. It's a turning away from the true God to a false God that is far lesser than he is. And notice that in that covenant language, it has a threat, like all covenant languages, it has a threat for disobedience and a promise for obedience. The threat is that the effects of the sin of breaking the second commandment will be upon the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. And that's consistent with what we understand the covenant to be. And that's why I lay this predominantly at the feet of the parents. You need to be sure that you are worshiping the true God in the way in which God is truly revealed himself, because if you don't, you are removing yourself and your family step by step outside of the boundaries of the covenant community. And when you do that, you are pushing your children into false religion outside of the covenant, and ultimately they will become those who hate God. That's what the language is saying. But the promise on the other side is, if you worship God truly according to his word, the promise is, the blessings will go for thousands of generations into eternity for you and your children. So we are to only worship God according to his word. But, you know, he has given us an image. We have his word, but more than that, we have his son. Because ultimately, the image of God is Jesus Christ. That's the only divinely authorized image of God that we are given. It's Jesus Christ, his son. So if worship in a church is all about the word of God, then a worship service where that is practiced is going to be a Christ-centered worship service because this book is about Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he said, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when you try to form any other image, you're saying Christ isn't enough. But Christ is the image of God. We see through the glass darkly. Our view of God is so clouded and corrupted by our sin. How can we ever worship God in a way that pleases Him? If you really understand the Second Amendment, you're going to feel the guilt of, in your own mind, in your own heart, reimagining God according to your own peer group, your own culture, your own sinful desires. You've all, and I, have broken the second commandment over and over again. But this is not to leave you in despair. As Tom said earlier, God delights in our worship. Well, how can this jealous, holy, transcendent God delight in the worship of sinners like us when it's so inadequate, so limited, so corrupted? Well, it's all about Jesus Christ again. Because Jesus Christ came, lived among us as the Son of God, both fully God and fully man, and he worshipped the God perfectly every moment of every day of his earthly life. He's the only one who didn't break the second commandment, and yet he went to the cross and allowed himself to be nailed there, and he allowed the wrath of his Holy Father to be poured out upon him in our place 
And He told us that if we will just believe that He bore our sin and He was raised from the dead and He now lives forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords, if we will only believe, then we receive the status by faith of being righteous, which means being one who always worships only with perfection every moment of our lives. We receive that from Him as a gift by faith. And that's how God looks at us. When we gather here on Sunday morning, that's why we give you opportunity to confess your sin as you come into worship so that you can rejoice in the full acceptance of God the Father. He warmly welcomes you into his worship because you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's not the end of it either. Because ultimately, worship is about far more than what we do here on Sunday morning. Worship is how we are to live every moment of our lives, every day of our lives. And really, the ultimate worship is to reflect the image of God back to him. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created in the image of God. They reflected the glory of God. But sin destroyed that. But in Christ, it's restored. In Christ, not only with the gift of perfect righteousness but with the gift of the Holy Spirit to renew us and restore us into the image of God. And that's how sanctification or becoming like Christ becomes the ultimate worship in life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, don't be jealous of Moses. Yeah, Moses got to see some great manifestation of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. And I think we sometimes think, boy, if I could have just seen that, then boy, I'd be the greatest servant God ever had. But he says, don't be jealous of Moses because of the glory that, God, that Christ is working in you is far greater than what Moses saw. He says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, we have put, off the new, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ is the image of God. We worship Christ and the Father by reflecting that image in obedience and holiness. All this comes as a gift through Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures and the gospel of his saving work. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as those who break the commandments daily, who in our minds and hearts, even in this service, have broken the second commandment because we have not fully embraced the truth of your word and understood and rendered to you the love and adoration and glory that your word demands of us. But you accept us because of what Christ did for us. You receive us as sons and daughters. You love us. You have entered into this covenant with us and you are making us like Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for receiving us. And we look forward to your renewing work as we become more and more like him day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.